Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 10 If I could remember rainbows, then I would describe them. Carver, Massachusetts, still nine years old. We moved again, but not too far away. We settled into a town called Carver, about 30 minutes up the road from New Bedford. The house was an old Victorian, which sat aloof and remote on the top of a hill surrounded by cranberry bogs. A dirt road led up to the house and then continued on to a row of sharecropper shacks. The place felt creepy, like maybe the last people who lived there had all been murdered by a family member. And the way the wind blew in through the windows suggested that their spirits were in a confused and possessive state of mind, demanding that we leave their property at once. At night, when the sun went down, the long-winded, throttling belches of bog bullfrogs pierced the night like the screams of an angry banshee and did not help to curb the notion that this rambling house was haunted. Diana was pregnant with Paul's first child, so she set about nesting, creating a fanciful home for her and her new baby. She went as far as sprucing up the kitchen, the living room, and her and Paul's bedroom. Our bedrooms were left sparse and unattended to, with the walls the color of -of turn-of-the-century blue and crumbling holes exposing plaster and lath. It had become very apparent and no longer a hushed family secret that Kathy, Tony, and I were the lesser children, the unwanted. Our role in the family, laborers, no better and probably worse off than the migrant workers who lived freely in the sharecropper shacks down the road. Diana put us to work endlessly, scrubbing walls, cleaning bathrooms, and doing yard work. She wanted the house spick and span for her new baby and never let up, even when our fingers became chapped and pruned from the constant immersion in water. Sometimes Paul would get the upper hand, and we would all gather in the very cozy living room, adorned with vibrantly green and healthy potted plants, for a bit of ironic family time. For the first time since we lived in the house that had burned down, we had a television set. But we weren't allowed to watch just anything. We had to watch wholesome family shows like The Waltons, which I hated. They were so sickeningly sweet, and John Boy's narration from his pompous and self-righteous soapbox gave me the urge to punch that big black mole right off his face. I would have bet anything that my dad hated The Waltons, too. What I did love was my new school. 
It was clean and orderly and had the magical smells of elementary glue, construction paper, and watercolors. I was happy every day to get on the bus and go away from the haunted house and the screaming pregnant mother to a place where I could relax and be free. I excelled at this school in both my studies and behavior, and because of this, my teacher gave me the privilege and the honor of working in the library. Quite often, I would be the only one in there, and it made me feel quite special and important. I would check books in and out, put their due date cards back into their folders, and then reshelve them according to the Dewey Decimal System. One of my responsibilities was to go to the classrooms and gather up the children for their library studies group. I felt like a grown-up and a real-life teacher as I walked through the halls, chaperoning my peers to the library. The sensation of being in charge filled me with a power that sparked in my imagination the most wonderful idea I had ever had. I was going to play school in school. And as I found out, this was much easier than I could have ever imagined. I did my privileged job just like usual, but I began to do it on days when the librarian was out. I would go from classroom to classroom, open the doors, pop my head in and say, library studies. The teachers always looked a little bit confused and a little stunned, but it was normal to see me there. So, with only a tad bit of reluctance, they released several children into my care. I took the group back to the library, where earlier I had arranged the chairs in a semicircle around the black felt easel. I stood in front of the group, introduced myself, and began to replicate all that I had learned from the librarian. The children giggled and seemed slightly impressed. They knew something was up, but they couldn't quite figure out what. After a few questions about whether or not I was old enough to lead the group, they settled in and went along for the ride. And why not? It was something different, and maybe someday they could lead the group. Of course I got caught, and I was scared shitless to go home. When the bus dropped me off, I walked a slow and methodical death march up the dirt road to the haunted house on the hill. I could almost see the plumes of smoke fuming from Diana's head. It was naive, but I was hoping I'd get off easy, because really, what harm had been done? When she appeared before me, her eyes were on fire, and she looked like she was going to explode, which she did first in words. You're a fat, disgusting disgrace and the most misbehaved child on the face of the planet. You are no better than an ugly pig rolling around in its own feces, getting fucked by all the other pigs. She had that kind of an imagination, and I knew I was in for it. She ordered me to get the paddle and the belt and head down to the basement. A single light bulb hung from an antiquated electrical cord and lit up the dank cubby of a room where our beatings were given. I pulled down my pants and bent over a small table, clenching my jaw and closing my eyes to stabilize my body in anticipation. 
Diana stood fierce, holding the wooden paddle like a batter in anticipation of a pitch. With slow deliberation, the wood made contact with a bone-breaking thud, and the force of her swing pushed me into the table. The paddle was flat and wide, so for the first couple of hits, I almost couldn't feel the punishment it was leaving behind. But hit after hit, the slow burn of bruising set in, and my internal organs began to feel the crushing repercussions of my bad behavior. My backside throbbed and pulsated with the blood that was rushing to the surface, which was my body's reaction to that biblical notion, spare the rod, spoil the child. Just when I thought it was all over, she threw the paddle down and grabbed the belt. It lay curled up on the concrete basement floor, coiled like a snake and ready to strike venom into this naughty little girl. Diana snapped her wrist and the leather cracked, leaving a burning welt on my flushed behind. She didn't say a word when she was done, so I just lay there with my pants down, full of shame and embarrassment, and not sure if I was allowed to leave the basement. Halfway up the old rickety staircase, she told me to go get washed for dinner. In a precarious attempt not to put pressure on open wounds, I sat lightly on the dining room chair, resting all of my weight on the upper thighs. I kept my eyes down and focused on the green peas that looked so happy on my plate. I wished I could be a pea, or just far away. It's hard to eat when your soul's been crushed, but I knew I'd better, because if I didn't, I'd be right back down there in that basement. Diana didn't notice me anymore. She had moved on to Kathy. Kathy couldn't eat either because Diana kept asking her why she was so ugly. My sister couldn't answer that question, so like me, she stared silently at her peas. Diana went into a rage and took her down to the basement looking for answers. If I could have, I would have traded places with her. Whenever I heard my brother or my sister getting beaten, my insides would shatter like feeble glass. I didn't care if Diana hit me. I felt stronger than my siblings. Kathy had been a preemie, and Tony, well, Tony was just a little guy whose mother was beating out any chance of him ever having a good or happy life. In March, Diana gave birth to a baby boy. Like Kathy and I, he was born with difficulties and went straight from the womb to the operating room for a surgery to untwine his intestines. It may have been at this time, when Paul and Diana were distracted, that Tony and I started playing a new game together. It didn't have a name, but we knew it was bad, so we kept it a secret. As far as I know, only Tony and I played, alone and without notice in the bedroom he shared with Kathy. On occasion, we would take off all our clothes, but that was rare. Mostly, we just pulled down our pants and Tony would get on top of me and pound furiously. 
Sometimes our hands would travel to places that were not very polite, places that smelled enticing yet equally disgusting. The smell lingered long after the game would end, and it made me feel obvious and oh so guilty. But somehow we were never found out. Tony and I did not love each other more after these episodes. We just grew to hate. Our little game confirmed what our mother always told us, that we were despicably rotten children. And the more rotten we felt, the more often we fought, just like our parents did when we lived in Cleveland, malicious and with murderous intent. As was the case on a day when Tony and I got into it over what I don't know, but the fight escalated, and before I knew it, Tony was chasing me around the property with a large, shiny machete. At first, I thought he was kidding because I had never seen the knife before, and I couldn't imagine where he got it. The whole event seemed surreal, as if I were being chased in a dream. But this wasn't a dream. It was real. My little brother truly hated me, and he wanted to kill me. Kathy started screaming and chasing Tony because the look of a madman had taken over his brown eyes and furrowed brow. We were terrified by the rage that was exploding out of our little brother. He was furious and unstoppable as he ran around waving the giant machete over his short little body. I moved as fast as I could, but my brother was more of an athlete, and because of my knees, I was a piss-poor runner. My biggest worry was that I would trip over the underbrush that created a mesh in our front yard. One snag and I would become easy prey. But thankfully, the awkward size of the machete slowed down my speedy little brother. Somehow, my little preemie sister tackled Tony and the machete fell to the ground. Kathy sat on top of him and yelled, What the hell are you doing? What is wrong with you? I didn't wait for the answer. I ran down the road to find refuge with my friends who lived in the sharecropper shacks. Out of all of us kids, Tony was the most damaged. He had excessive energy that could not be contained. It was almost like his soul had made a mistake, and now he was trying to escape from the body it had chosen for incarnation. He rarely spoke, and when he did, it was nothing but mean. He turned his pain into fire and burnt anyone who came near, including himself. He was intensely haunted, and the evidence showed up early in his deep and troubled eyes eyes that seemed to be watching a continuous loop of all the grievous inhumanities of mankind. At a very young age, Tony knew more about the world than anyone ought to, and I blame my father for this because Tony needed him. I blame my mother, too, because Tony was born sensitive, and she beat that right out of him. You when 